Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation 2. Last week we began our study in the seven churches of Asia and the letters that Jesus wrote unto them. We studied the church of Ephesus, an assembly which struggled heavily against error, against lies, with great labor and with great patience. They were a working church. They were a patient church. They were an enduring church. But the Lord had somewhat against them because they had lost their first love. They had lost their motivation. They were doing the work, but the heart behind it was not what it once was. They were going through the motions. There was a passion even, we might say, behind it, but their, their heart for the Lord was waning. In a few weeks, we'll see a church that is the opposite, a church that is working and growing and pushing and, and forging ahead. And we'll see a bit of a, of a difference there, a juxtaposition between the two churches. They had systematized their resistance to evil in the church of Ephesus and so had lost sight of their motivation, their first love. They were just going through the motions in one sense. This week we turn our eyes toward a church that was suffering tremendous persecution. Not the only church that, goes through, that would go through persecution, and yet uh, one that we see in its uniqueness because they endured it so well. There is no rebuke to the church of Smyrna. One of two churches specifically, maybe three, depending on um, how you interpret Thyatira. When we get there, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, at least two, maybe three, of which there is no particular rebuke of the church itself. Persecution is something for which the church never desires, but something for which the church always needs to be prepared. Persecution is not the reality of every local church, but it is a possibility for every local church. And as we consider persecution today, we are going to attempt to acknowledge both the general lack of persecution experienced in our part of the world among the local church, while simultaneously bringing to mind the reality that there are places around the world where Christians are in tremendous persecution. And there are many who are dying for the faith. Also remembering this morning that there has never been a time since the advent of the church where Christianity has not been persecuted somewhere in the world. Christianity is currently, statistically, and has been since it began, the most persecuted religion in the world. We can forget that as we live in a place as guarded by religious liberty as our own country. But such is not the case in the majority of the world. Even now, the majority of the Western world is no longer this way. And throughout most of history, Christianity has been a persecuted group of people. To this end, we must also remind ourselves that such will not always be the case in this country, that we will be able to assemble without fear, that we will be able to uh, tell others of Christ without repercussion. Persecution is an inevitability, in fact, not necessarily in our generation or in our children's generation or even our grandchildren's generation. But persecution is an inevitability. And all the more as we see the day approaching. 
So today we talk about Smyrna. And take note as we walk through that, as with each letter, there is a certain structure that is followed with each of these churches. First, the name of the church is given. Then we see a distinct presentation of Jesus toward the church. There's a commendation of their works, things that they're doing well, with the exception of one church where there is no commendation, nothing they're doing well. That would be the church of Laodicea. Then there is a rebuke of their errors, as I mentioned, with the exception of two churches, one of which we'll see this morning, uh, perhaps three, depending on how we interpret Thyatira. Then there is instruction for repentance or for action toward, in regard to their error. There's a call for the church to, to hear and to learn from the example of, of this one church. And then there's a hopeful promise to all believers, to all the overcomers of that which is to come. And we'll see this again and again, this template again and again in each one. And we are uh, in, in no way going to be immune from that this morning as we walk through Smyrna. We're going to see this same general template come out, these same seven st- uh, points in the structure. Name, presentation of Jesus, commendation of their works, rebuke of their error, instruction for repentance and or action, a call to the church to hear and learn, and then a hopeful promise to all believers. So we begin this morning in Revelation chapter 2, beginning verse 8, where the Bible says this, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Once again, we see the address to the angel of the church of Smyrna. We talked last time about what that means, that it is the angel of the church. We're not going to belabor these, these uh, same points every week, but we talked two weeks ago about the fact that most likely this is speaking of an earthly messenger, not a spiritual heavenly messenger. It is uh, a messenger to the church, an earthly messenger to the church, and that that would be someone, perhaps an elder, uh, pastor, that sort of a position within the church. And um, we also noted that while the remarks are addressed to this single messenger, and we do see a singular pronoun here, the thee, thy, thou in our King James Bible, indicating that the Greek uh, second person pronoun behind it is singular, speaking to one entity or one person, that the message is to the church. It's just that we are describing, seeing the church described as a single entity until there are points where we'll see the pronoun switch to plural, where individual action is called upon in the church. Our church this week is Smyrna. It's another coastal city, north and west of Ephesus. Smyrna was a large and very ancient city. It's a city which pre-existed the Greek occupation of the area in 1100 B.C., By the time John is writing to this church, it's quite possible that this city had existed for some 1,500 years. And that's really amazing if you think about it, when we consider how young our country is, uh, just a couple hundred years old, and how young even many of the cities of Europe are, which are many, many more hundred years old. For a city to have existed for 1,500 years, the kind of heritage and history in that city, an ancient city with a good harbor, large highway that ran through it. During the Roman times in which John wrote this letter to Smyrna, it was considered one of the greatest cities in Asia. It was a progressive city. It had large universities. 
it, the universities in this particular city were universities of medicine and universities of science. So it was a very progressive, scientific city. If you are familiar at all with the church fathers, uh, there is one particular church father who's pretty well known named Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He was martyred around 156 AD. Now we said that, that Paul was writing these around 95 AD. So Polycarp would not be martyred for somewhere around 50 years after John writes this epistle. However, early church tradition does tell us, and we always need to be a little bit careful with early church tradition, but early church tradition tells us that Polycarp was a disciple of John, the very John that is writing this epistle to the church of Smyrna, that Polycarp was one of his disciples and that John was the apostle that ordained Polycarp to lead the church there. He was described in history as a man of unique piety and skill as a teacher. And to this end, as Polycarp became an influential uh, leader in the church of Smyrna, that church did become an influential church. So as we've said before, these aren't necessarily all the most influential churches. Smyrna, however, was one. And while we would recognize uh, their influential, we'll also see as we continue that they were indeed a deeply persecuted church. We then come to Jesus' presentation of himself to the church in verse 8. These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Twice in chapter 1, we saw Jesus call himself the first and the last. We'll see it, and then we see it here, and we'll see it again in chapter 2, verse 19. He also again associates himself very strongly here with his death and his victorious resurrection. These two attributes are, of course, essential to our understanding of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is eternal. We talked about that in Revelation 1. That's what it means that he is the first and the last. He is eternal. And then also that he is the one who died and rose again, that the eternal God is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it would be particularly important, these, these elements of, of Christ's character, for a suffering church. That Jesus is the beginning and the end. That he is in control. That he has been here long before our troubles and that he will exist long after our troubles is a comfort in time of persecution. Also, that Jesus was dead and is alive, and as chapter 1 says, and is alive forevermore. A reminder that the, tribu- the tribulation of death, that the sorrow of, of persecution and of martyrdom has no sting to the believer. We'll study in a couple of weeks in our evening service uh, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It'll be next Sunday night. And as we consider Jesus' resurrection from the dead, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Grave, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? There is no sting to death if we are resurrected unto life. And so for a persecuted church, The reminder that Jesus has always been and always will be. The reminder that the grave has no victory. That the thing with which the world threatens us, the worst thing they can threaten us with, which is death, is the very thing which seals our victory. Be important for this church to remember. And so this is how Jesus presents himself to this church. The first and the last, which was dead and is alive. We continue in verse 9. Into the the commendation, Jesus says to them, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are 
the synagogue of Satan. For the sake of Christ, the church had gone through tremendous persecution and tribulation. They had been impoverished, likely losing their jobs and their livelihoods. This is not uncommon in certain cultures of the day that when a person professes faith in Jesus Christ, that they lose their family, that they lose their job, that they, are, 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 uh, they lose fellowship with their community. Perhaps their businesses were boycotted. Perhaps there was a refusal to serve them as customers for their faith, all for Christ's sake. And so he acknowledges their works. He acknowledges their labor. He acknowledges the tribulation they're going through. He acknowledges their poverty. These were not wealthy people. Uh, they, were, they were impoverished and likely because of their stance for Christ. That's why it's mentioned here. However, notice there he says in, in this parenthetical statement in our King James Bibles, but... Thou art rich. Such suffering had made them rich. We'll talk about this a little bit more in our, in our application. But what we understand from the Word of God is that when we are, as the Scriptures say, buffeted for our faults, there's no glory. But if when we do well and suffer for it, we take it patiently, the Bible says this is acceptable with God. There's treasure in heaven among those who suffer for Christ on this earth. There are rewards in heaven for those who suffer for Christ on this earth. So as Jesus looked down upon this church and their suffering and their tribulation and even their poverty, the things which if we were looking at them materially, we would say they lack, but spiritually they were wealthy. Spiritually they were blessed. In the world to come, they had great riches. Finally, Jesus says, And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. This is the first of four references to Satan within the letters to the churches. It reminds us that the battle that we rage is not a battle against people. It's a battle against spiritual forces and spiritual foes. We're reminded of this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul writes, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We are in a spiritual battle. When, during our prayer this morning, I acknowledge the fact that prayer brings power. The reason why there's so much power in prayer is for this very reason, that the true battle is in the heavenlies. The true battle is on a spiritual plane. That is where the battle is fought. What we see materially are the manifestations of the battle as it plays out. But the power behind the battle is in the heavens, heavenlies. So we find in Smyrna that a contingency of Jews were extremely hostile to the Christian faith. There were cities like Ephesus, uh, where the pressure and anger against the church came from unbelievers. We would understand that, right? If we go back to Acts and we read about what happened in Ephesus, uh, there were people getting saved, and the pagan idol sellers were upset at Paul and upset at the church because they were losing out on money because everyone was turning from idolatry to serve the true and living God. And so it, were, it was the pagans, it was the, the uh, businessmen of that city that were against the church. In Smyrna, we see a religious group of people that were against
against the church. There were scattered throughout Asia cities where persecution came through the religious world, not from the pagan world. And in the early church, the most regular persecution came from the Jewish religion. In Antioch of Pisidia, as we read through the book of Acts, in Iconium, in Thessalonica, all of these places were places where the Jews rose up against Paul and against his comrades and threw them out of the city, even chasing them through the region, trying to have them destroyed for the name of Christ. In Thessalonica, the Jews had so deeply persecuted the Christians there that they pursued Paul from Thessalonica to um, Berea and then literally ran him out of Macedonia. And that's when he ended up in Athens and then eventually in Corinth because he had to leave for the sake of the safety of all of the other people in the church. When you read the letters to the Thessalonians, to First and Second Thessalonians, you find that they were a church that was tremendously persecuted by the Jews, by those that claimed the Jewish faith. Yet we call to our mind that it is Satan who is ultimately behind these evils, that our war is not against people, religions, philosophies, our war is against the forces of evil and the darkness of this world. And this is important to keep in mind, especially in our age, because many religionists, have been inspired by this verse uh, to speak uh, of different things, different ideologies. This verse is one that, particularly in our age, has been um, interpreted in any number of ways. And I want to address this today, although I don't really want to. Uh, these theories are all over the Internet, and, and I wouldn't have addressed them maybe 10 years ago because they'd be uh, labeled uh, excessively fringe. But with the advent of the Internet and nothing... That with with the, the capacity of the fringe to have the same voice as anyone else now, what is fringe is not necessarily fringe anymore. So there is this theory out there, this um, way of thinking whereby a, this group of people believes that the world is run by rich Jewish men who worship Satan and that more or less all religious Jews, specifically a subset of them called Zionists, are part of this conspiracy. Now, those who are Christians who, who believe this point to this verse in particular and say that it's a group of people who claim to be Jews but are not Jews, a lot of them believing that Jews are, are believers. They, they believe in what we call replacement theology, so that, that the church is what's being spoken of as Jews here and that those who are not Jews are those who are in the, the pagan Judaistic religion and yet they are not actually Jews and they are not actually followers of Christ and therefore they, they have no roots in Abraham and so they are the synagogue of Satan and that this synagogue of Satan is a cabal of rich, wealthy, powerful Jews that run the world. Now there's absolutely no question that there's a large portion of, of uh, a, a, an unusually large portion of successful men and women, particularly in the Western world, who claim Judaism, whether secular or religious. It is actually quite stunning when you start to look at the number of influential people in the media, in Hollywood, in the music industry, and in politics who are Jewish in origin, whether secular or religious. Um, we would not necessarily find this to be all that uh, um, surprising, 
if we recognize the distinctions between Israel and the church and recognize that God has always, even in the dispersion, promised to be with and to bless his chosen people. However, there are also globalist families, large, rich, powerful globalist families, Rothschilds and George Soros and Goldman Sachs and such. They're all Jewish, right? And so there's weight behind this idea that there's these large, rich, powerful Jewish cabals that are running the world. They're called by any number of names. The Illuminati, Bilderberg Group, Freemasonry, and other things. They're all secret societies, some of which do indeed exist, others of which there's no evidence they exist. And the mystique around all of them has grown and grown and grown over the years. Groups of international globalists. We know that Jews are pervasive in these industries. You couple that with uh, characteristic anti-Semitism, both within and without the church, and we get all sorts of ideas. I could go on. I'm trying to decide if I want to. I I don't think I'm going to go any deeper into this. I gave you a little bit of a primer into this this morning. To those of you that have never heard of it and you're thinking, what is Pastor talking about? Um, Good. You don't need to know. To those of you who might believe some of this stuff and you're frustrated with me and my over-simplistic representation of the rabbit hole effect that this has of digging down to, to deeper and deeper and deeper and, and, and the, the levels of control and, and all the strings that are being pulled and such, we know that Satan is at work. We know that strings are being pulled. We know that he's using people. We know these things. And I'm sorry if I have frustrated you because of my over-simplistic explanation of these things. I'm not here to frustrate you. I'm not here to argue even the merits of these various theories whether they're true, whether they're false, and to what degree they're true or false. I certainly have no intention on teaching any more on this topic, which should command no priority in your mind. But as I draw it back to the text, this is what needs to be said. There is no valid way a person can link this statement, the synagogue of Satan. Well, you can believe you know, whatever you want about those things. You can draw the lines. You can make the connections, and that's fine. But there is no valid link in this text between the synagogue and Satan to all religious Jews or all Jews that long for the reestablishment of their Jewish nationalism and their Jewish homeland. In other words, just because they live in Israel or long for Israel does not make them a part of the international globalist cabal. And we're, we're, we're coming into a dangerous place here again in the church where for a portion of time anti-Semitism was fought in the church primarily through the rise of what we call dispensationalism where that is now leaving and as the church becomes more reformed again anti-Semitism is becoming very popular and very potent again in the church. We know that the, early, that, that the church throughout those middle ages and, and, and beyond uh, even into the Reformation were deeply anti-Semitic. We know the Catholic church was deeply anti-Semitic. We know that Martin Luther was deeply anti-Semitic. We know John Calvin was deeply anti-Semitic. And it was not until the advent of really the the, the breaking away from that through uh, various uh, denominational groups that we began to see in the Western world a break away from anti-Semitism. It's finding its way back in. I I would caution you deeply about that. And I would caution you deeply about what is being said in this verse. The point of this passage is not that these people are pretending to be Jews to get some sort of social standing in, sec- in secret societies that are, so that they can be the, the head of the globalist table. But rather, when John says they say they are Jews but they are not, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, 
the best we can come to understand what's being said here, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, the Bible being the best commentary on itself, is compared with Romans chapter 2 and what Paul says there. So in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, Paul says this, For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Remember in Romans chapter 2, he's writing to Jews, ethnic Jews, the, the seed of Abraham. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision doth, doth transgress the law? For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision that is of the heart, in the spirit, and not the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. So Paul warns the Jewish readers in Romans that they are not, that, that, that a Jew is not just a person who has been circumcised outwardly, but rather the Jew who has recognized the essence of the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul acknowledges that any seed of Abraham who, having read and obeyed the Old Testament scriptures, uh, is, is obeying them in truth, would without fail hear the voice of the shepherd, their, their God, the Lord Jehovah, who is also Jesus Christ, and would follow Jesus Christ into salvation, into born-again belief in the finished work of Christ. The Holy Ghost would make them, of course, new in, uh, new creation in Christ, pictured here by being circumcised in heart. Uh, to this end, the true Jew is not the stock of Israel who is circumcised outwardly, but rather the stock of Israel who is circumcised inwardly, he who has accepted Messiah. And I make the distinction here that Paul is not saying every believer is a true Jew, but only that those who are of Abraham's seed and of Abraham's faith by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And I'm going to say that, and I'm going to move on from it quite quickly. But the reason why I feel comfortable saying this and moving on quite quickly is because in that three-month foundation to this course, to this, to this uh, uh, series that I gave you, for, uh, where we talked through biblical interpretation, I spent three sermons helping you understand why it is we believe there's a distinction between the church and Israel. So because I laid that foundation for you, I am not going to build again the foundation. Uh, I'm going to le le let it lie. If you did not hear those sermons, they're uh, on our website. They're, we've got a podcast. They're also on YouTube. You can go to YouTube, Legacy Baptist Church, and you can watch me on YouTube if you want to watch with the slides, if you just want to listen. We've got a podcast. We've got them on our website. There's plenty of ways for you to go back and to hear that and to hear why it is we do not believe that the church has supplanted Israel as God's chosen people. Paul would say a very similar thing in Romans 9, verses 6 and 7. They are not all Israel which are of Israel, that only a subset of the Jewish people are true Jews, those being they who, being of the seed of Abraham, have also accepted the teachings of the law by faith, and so have accepted their Messiah, who the law promised would come. Now this interpretation, however, is by no means cut and dry in that Paul would regularly use the language of Israel to describe the Gentile church. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, the church is called the Israel of God. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says the church is the circumcision which worship God in spirit. In Colossians 2.11, Paul calls the church the circumcision made without hands. Again, this is why it's so important that that foundation that we laid was laid. 
I've explained a lot of this already for you. I'm not trying to tell you that the interpretation is cut and dry. I'm simply telling you we've already laid the foundation for the interpretation to where we can say Paul was willing to say, as we relate it to our text, that not every Jew is a Jew. But only those who, being of the seed of Abraham, have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so if we take this definition of what is a Jew and we carry it into John's reading, which we can do because Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture and the Holy Spirit inspired it all, then we would understand what John is saying in verse 9 to be this. That the ones who say they are Jews and are not are those who are committed to this Judaistic religion apart from their Messiah, which makes them apostate Jews. The Orthodox Judaistic religion today is a religion which has divorced itself from the very promise that the Old Testament makes. They have rejected the Messiah of the Old Testament. Therefore, they have rejected the very essence of Old Testament law. Therefore, they are not true Jews in the sense of the people of God. They are, the, the, the true Jews are the completed Jews, those who have accepted their Messiah. And one day it will be all of them if we read Romans chapter 11, not all in history, but all in one generation, the generation that Christ returns if we understand the scriptures literally. Now, it is at this point, I hope that made sense to you. It's a little bit tricky, but I, I did want to address the conspiracy end of things because if you look this verse up online, you're going to find a lot of that. It's at this point that we would typically find a rebuke. Except there is no rebuke to the church of Smyrna. We would never believe a church to be sinlessly perfect. True perfection is reserved for heaven alone. But they were perfect in their testimony for Christ in this way, that Christ had no major besetting sin for which to grab a hold and to rebuke them for. This is not uncommon among the persecuted when facing deep persecution, even unto death, the uncommitted don't hang around very long. Those that have lost their zeal, those that have lost any desire, they don't hang around very long. The, uh, amid persecution, the sheep are very quickly separated from the goats. And those that have no desire for a true commitment to the Lord falter quite quickly. And the committed know Christ's love and power in such an unusual way that there simply isn't, isn't any room left for disobedience. They are hanging on to Christ so tightly when you're committed and in the midst of deep persecution that disobedience is, is certainly not what's on your mind. So to this end, there is no rebuke to the church. Next, then, we don't find a rebuke, but in verse 10 we find instruction. Jesus says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Notice Jesus does not tell them that they are not going to suffer. Only rather he tells them not to fear suffering. Don't fear the blasphemies of the synagogue of Satan. Don't fear the wrath of the devil against the church of Christ. Indeed, the devil would cast some of them into prison. In this spiritual battle that is raging in Smyrna, they are going to have some that are thrown into prison. They would be tried. They would suffer tribulation. But it would only be, as the text states, for a period of time. The text explicitly states here that they would have tribulation 
10 days. This is somewhat of an interesting promise. Is Jesus saying here that their, tri- that their tribulation would last only 10 literal days? That from the day that this letter was read in their assembly, they could count 1, 2, 3, all the way up to 10, and on the 10th day, tribulation would be over. Does not seem likely that that's what's being said here, right? Does not seem likely. Well, perhaps this is like the 70 weeks of Daniel, where each week, of course, being made up of, of, of sevens, right? A week being se- a set of sevens. And uh, so the set of sevens within a week is, is a day. So that means that each day within the, the 70 weeks would be a, a year. And so maybe 10 days would mean 10 years of tribulation, This is also very unlikely. And the reason why is because while we see the 70 weeks, as we talked about when we were there, that delineation week is not actually, uh, does not demand that it be seven days, right? A week is a set of seven somethings. Now, characteristically in the Hebrew language, a set of seven would be a week. Uh, Contextually, it would be a week. But we found in Daniel that the set of sevens is not a set of seven weeks, but a set of seven years. It never says that one day equals a year. It simply says that uh, this set of seven is seven years. So we don't really actually have any interpretive precedence to say that a day can be a year in Scripture because of the 70 weeks. Because never in the 70 weeks does it say anything about days. It only talks about weeks, and that's simply a set of seven. We know that those, that set of seven is years. To this end, I think that this is also unlikely. So based upon... What is being said here, other metaphorical theories um, about the church is that some believe, and, and we'll talk about why a person might believe these after we talk through all seven churches. Some believe 10 days means 10 eras of persecution uh, in the church, that there would be 10 Roman rulers, one right after another. And they, what they try to do is they try to uh, trace the, the history of the church up to when the church was legalized in the days of Constantine. And they say that there were 10 Roman emperors between Smyrna and when the church was, was made a legal entity so that they were no longer persecuted. Therefore, the 10 days are the 10 generations of leaders um, within the Roman uh, Empire who persecuted them. We'll talk about that when we talk about what we call the church age theory. Um, it would seem most consistent, however, to simply see this 10 days, and again, this is just a theory, but to see this 10 days as a Hebrew symbolic number. All throughout the Old Testament, we saw certain numbers that have great symbolic significance, right? We talked about seven already, and we'll talk about it more. The, the number seven is the number of completion. It's the number of fulfillment. It's the number of God, we might say. Uh, God is often uh, um, attributed to seven of things. We talked about the seven spirits uh, for the Holy Spirit in Revelation chapter one. Uh, seven days in the week, because on the seventh day, God rested and then the creation was complete. So we see seven. Seven as a number of completion, a number of fulfillment. We see six in, in Revelation to be the number of man, the number that falls just short of fulfillment, right? Just short of God's divine number. We see 40 as a very important number, and 40 seems to represent a number of fulfillment as well. Uh, this was the number of days in the flood, right? There were 40 days where it rained on the earth during the flood. Uh, this was the length of Saul's reign. It was the length of David's reign. It was the length of Solomon's reign. They all reigned for 40 years symbolizing that they had a full and a complete reign. Uh, Not reign like the flood reign, but reign like the rule reign. This would be the amount of time uh, between Jonah's announcement of destruction and when Nineveh was supposed to be destroyed, right? 40 days. A complete amount of time for them to 
repent. And if they did not repent within that amount of time, there would be judgment. This was the length of time that Jesus fasted in in the wilderness. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted a complete amount of time before he entered into his trial. So we see symbolic numbers in the word of God. And, And these can get, again, I would caution you with these. Because there are books where every single number has symbolism and then you get into numerology and things can just get... You you can dig too deep sometimes. But 10, we see in Scripture, is often used to designate a limited period of time. A period of time with a view toward the end of that time. The idea shows up in several places. I don't have time to substantiate them all this morning, but if you want to write them down, you can study them for yourself. Places where we see the number 10 come up, and it's a period of time with almost a, a view toward the end of that fulfillment. We see it in Gen- uh, Genesis chapter 24, verse 55. We see it in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 12. We see it in Daniel chapter 1, verse 12. We see it in 1 Samuel 1, verse 8. And in Job 19.3, I'll give you those again if you want to write them down. Genesis 24.55, Nehemiah 4.12, Daniel 1.12, 1 Samuel 1.8, Job 19.3. The rest of you can just take my word for it. It is just speculation, but it's founded upon a biblical example that we see this number 10 come up in times where there is a, a desire for something, but that there's a looking toward the end of it, that at the end of 10 days, something is going to happen, that, that there is a 10-day span, there's a portion of time, and then it will be over. And I believe that's what's being said here. By, by using the number 10 to this group of readers, it is an expression that there is a period of time, but remember, it's not forever. Remember, it will end. Remember, it is going to be over at some point. And the charge, beyond just not fearing suffering, is a call that they would be faithful unto death. And he says, if you are faithful unto death, if you go through this persecution, this 10 days, this period of persecution, and you are faithful, I will give you a crown of life. Two more elements of the address remaining, both in verse 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. First, we see again the charge. He that hath an ear, this is a charge to everybody reading. This letter was sent to all these churches. Everybody reading should, if you have ears to hear, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior and you are listening and you understand what's going on here, Hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Listen, learn from this. Again, when we talk about the church age theory, we'll, we'll, we'll link this he that hath an ear statement and talk about what, what it means in a deeper context. But the idea being here, take heed to what is being said. Take heed, churches that are in persecution. Read about Smyrna. Read about their faithfulness. Read about their, their, uh, the tribulation. Read about the fact that though they were poor, Christ called them rich and learn. Learn from this. And then the promise to all overcomers, the hopeful promise to believers, that if you have accepted Christ as your Savior, you're an overcomer, and he that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. We find a definition of the second death in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. I'm not going to, uh, I don't have it up on the screen this morning, but they that were cast into the lake of fire, the Bible says this is the second death. The second death is the, the, the second separation from God 
when the spirit is taken and removed from God forever, eternal conscious torment and separation from God, that is the second death. The overcomers will not be, take part in the second death. This promise, very important to Smyrna, because they were taking part in the first death quite violently, weren't they? They were seeing, the, the, the first death was right in front of their eyes. The first death was breathing down their necks. And as that first death was so real to them, because people were dying in their church, they were being killed for the faith, that he was reminding them, you're an overcomer, the second death has no power over you. This is where our exposition stops this morning because there's much to say by way of application. Let's apply point number one as we apply this morning. Church, remember, tribulation and persecution are the birthright of God's children. I don't want to discourage you this morning. We're going to, we're going to uh, encourage you in a moment. But do remember this. The birthright of the followers of God is and always has been persecution and tribulation. Um, we are talking about this heavily over the last couple of weeks in Luke, in our Luke series as we consider Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus spoke heavily of this concept in John 15 and 16. I give you a smattering of verses in that this morning. Verses 18 and 19, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Don't be surprised when you are rejected by those who have rejected the truth. It's not because of you. They're not rejecting you. They're not rejecting your personality. They're not rejecting your character. They're rejecting the light that is within you because your light exposes their darkness and they don't like that. Jesus says, know that if they hate you, they hated me first. They don't even hate you as much as they hate Christ in you. Verses 24 through 27. If I had not done among them works which none other man did, they had not had sin. They wouldn't have, have recognized their sin because he was making such a clear distinction between light and darkness. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. Because they hate Jesus, they hate the father too. But this cometh to pass that the, world might be, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. The law of the, that would be Mo, the law of Moses. They hated me without a cause. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, that would be the Holy Spirit, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. He would go on to say in John 16, verses 1 through 4, These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. Don't stumble at this. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. He promises here there's going to be times of persecution. And in those times, remember, I told you it was coming. Not because Jesus is sadistic and he's, he's not enjoying this. But he's warning them, this is the natural consequence of becoming a follower of truth. That error will either flee to the shadows or it will come violently against you. 
He continues in John 16, verses 32 and 33. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things have I, sp- I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Tribulation and persecution should not surprise the child of God. Now, don't go looking for it. Don't go looking for it. Don't ask for it. And certainly don't make yourself odious so that people want to persecute you. The darkness of this world can do that all on their own in their time. The darkness will hate, does hate truth. And because you are not of the world, but you are of the truth, you are on the wrong side of the darkness of this world. If you were of the world, the world would love you because the world loves its own. And this is why hateful religions and philosophies and ideologies are defended by the darkness of this world while Christianity is hated. How is it, has, does it marvel anyone else as we see uh, Western European culture just be destroyed that their leaders will get up and defend the evil of the Islamist but will excoriate the righteousness of the Christian? It, it, is, it, is a, it is something to behold, is it not? To learn in the United Kingdom about these, uh, these Islamists who have taken thousands of young girls and taken advantage of them and, and, uh, and, and they've been in fear and they've been abused and to have the government turn a blind eye and even defend these men. But then when a Christian pundit attempts to enter the United Kingdom, they turn them away at customs for their hate speech. When we see these things come to pass, we see what Jesus is saying. The world loves its own. And so it will defend even religious darkness. They'll defend religious darkness, but what they will not and cannot abide is the light. They cannot abide the light. Christians have a unique message, emphasis upon love, grace, and mercy, yet we are the evil of society. They hate you for the same reason Cain hated Abel. We read about it in Hebrews 11.4. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. I'm sorry, I didn't give you the right verse there. Uh, Let me go there because I'm pretty sure it's just... Um, nope, that's not what I was looking for. My apologies. Um, I'm not quite sure where it is at the moment. Uh, the, the verse that speaks of Cain hating Abel and why, not because of Cain of Abel's or of Cain's sin, but because of Abel's righteousness, he hated his brother, not because of his brother's evil, but because indeed of his brother's righteousness. I apologize, I gave you the wrong verse there. Um, I'll get you the right one uh, next week. So the darkness of this world hates you. And I don't mean you, I don't mean that every neighbor hates you, but the darkness of this world hates the light. When the light shines into darkness, those that love darkness revolt against the light bearers. And the more you manifest the light of Christ to this world, the more you should expect the darkness of this world to contend against you. 
Now, I say this not to work in you an us first them mentality. Your enemy is not the people of this world. Your enemy is not the angry people who think that you are evil because you're a Christian. That is not your enemy. Your enemy is not the hate-filled religious zealots who want to shut you down because they don't like what you believe. Your enemy is not the patronizing purveyor of science so-called that thinks you're a relic of middle-aged thinking because you believe that God created the world and it wasn't created by an impossible bang uh, in an impossible situation. These are not your enemies. This is your mission field. These are those of whom Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5. Verses 43 to 48. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. Even unbelievers love those that love them. And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Everyone salutes their brethren. Do not even publicans so. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Smyrna was a church with no rebuke, that as they were being persecuted, they prayed for them. They loved their enemies. And we know this because though they were impoverished, Christ said, ye are rich. There is reward believer, for those that will live this way. You and I live in the United States of America. To this end, we are uniquely insulated from the reality of Christian persecution as it exists in the world. There are, however, publications out there that can teach you of these things, that can show you what's going on in the world. I've considered maybe doing a a weekly or a monthly update for you so that you can read some of these. Consider a few recent examples from a few recent emails I've gotten As a matter of fact, the name of the ministry that does this is called Smyrna, Smyrna Ministries. In Somalia, one Christian writes this, he writes under the pseudonym Moses, violence is in our homes and we who are few risk our lives every day. Those born in the 90s have become intolerant and do not understand their elders who profess Christianity. Therefore, the elders flee, go away from their children and grandchildren. Some Christians are killed by their children's children. Pakistan, quote, if you are a non-Muslim there, that means you have to face and accept discrimination, lack of religious freedom, physical and psychological torture as a part of daily life. It is routine to hear that some girl from a Christian, Hindu, or other minority community is raped and killed or has been forcibly converted. A person is murdered by a mob for alleged blasphemy. Some non-Muslim men, women, and children are sentenced to death for a supposed blasphemy they never committed. Algeria. On November 9th of 2017, local authorities closed down a church in Algeria's northwestern town. Authorities claimed that the church affiliated with the Protestant Church of Algeria did not stay, have state approval and was illegally printing gospels and publication intended for evangelism. On December 19th, three Christians were arrested in a city 124 miles northwest of the capital, Algiers, and taken into police custody for interrogation because of Christian literature found in their possession. The three Christians were later released, but still may face charges of proselytism. According to the Christian advocacy group in the Middle, uh, Middle Eastern Concerns, The growing pressure against Christians in Algeria signals a coordinated campaign of intensified action against churches by the governing authorities. 
Nigeria. On New Year's Eve, at least 16 churchgoers were killed when Muslim gunmen opened fire on a midnight service uh, in Nigeria's Southern Rivers State. A week later, on January 7th, a mass burial was held in Benue State for 49 Christians out of a group of at least 65 people slaughtered by Muslim Fulani herdsmen on New Year's Day. Armed with deadly weaponry and cutlasses, these Islam-inspired murderers did not stop after January 1st. On January 2nd and 5th and 6th, continued attacks were carried out on predominantly Christian villages in central Nigeria. Morningstar News also reported attacks on January 22nd and 25th, which led to eight Christians being killed and at least 50 homes belonging to Christians being burned. On January 13th, 27-year-old Coptic Christian Bassem Hertz Atalaha was shot to death on the street in El Arish, the capital of North Sinai government in Egypt. Bassem was heading home from work with his brother and a Muslim friend when three Islamic militants, their faces uncovered, confronted them. Bassem's friend Osama later told the news agency that he knew the men, possibly from the Islamic State affiliate known as the Sinai Promise, were looking to, for a Coptic Christian to kill. The militants demanded that Bassem, Osama, and their friends display their hands, as many Coptic Christians have a small cross-shaped tattoo on their wrist. After seeing the cross tattoo on Bassem, the men asked if he was a Christian. Bassem's answer would determine their next actions. He responded with a resounding yes. The men shot him there in the street. We don't feel guilty that we live in a land that does not face this persecution, and we ought not feel guilty for that. But shame on us if we get it into our heads that that Christianity is not under persecution today. And shame on us for wasting the freedom that we have to assemble and to testify of our faith in this blessed time. And if we somehow convince ourselves that the birthright of the church is ease or is luxury or is wealth in this life, then we have become fools indeed. Jesus told us in John 15, 18, that if the world hates us, we know that it hated him first. Jesus, uh, John wrote, excuse me, in 1 John three thirteen, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Jesus told us in John 16, 33, that in this world we shall have tribulations. But be of good cheer, he said. And this is our second point. I have overcome the world. Tribulation is the, uh, and persecution are the birthright of God's children, but notice and take note as well that victory is the inheritance of God's children. Our birthright is tribulation, but our inheritance is victory. The moments of pain and sorrow which stand in the face of the lives of those who follow Christ always gives way to an eternity of peace. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 58, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
The hope that we have that sees us through times of pain and sorrow. We, as the church that is not under this kind of persecution, the fervor that we have, the direction that we have, the desire that we have as we see the day approaching is faithfulness. That as we are faithful, steadfast, unmovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, we know this as much as we know anything. It is not wasted. It is not wasted. Not one sacrifice in this life for Christ will be wasted in the life to come. Not one decision of righteousness will be overlooked before God's throne. Not one moment of your time dedicated to the things of Christ will go unnoticed. Not one prayer for your enemies will not redound to your heavenly victory. Death has no sting. The grave has no victory. Death and the grave has been swallowed up in the victory of the resurrection. For we who are in Christ, victory is our inheritance. Third and finally, remember that abundant reward awaits those who endure with tribulation and patience. Victory is our inheritance. And at the end of that victory is great reward. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they, the prophets which were before you. The legacy of the follower of God in every generation going back to the prophets is persecution. That is the birthright. But we can rejoice and be exceeding glad because as our day of persecution gives way to our day of victory, that victory brings with it the rewards of our suffering. We speak not just of major persecutions, but minor as well. We've mentioned, and uh, I, I in no way want to minimize what we've already read about people whose lives are being taken around the world. I, I didn't even read about North Korea and Vietnam and the things that are happening there, Cambodia. But persecution does happen in, in a level on, in, in our country as well. We read of businessmen whose businesses are being shut down because they're being asked to operate their business in a manner that offends their conscience. That's persecution. Perhaps you've been passed over for a a raise at work, a job opportunity, because you're that holier-than-thou guy. That's a level of persecution. When you're mocked and scorned for your determined righteousness in your life among friends or colleagues or family, when your family disowns you or disassociates with you, This is a level of persecution. And the Bible says, when you endure with patience, scorn, faithfully following the example of our Lord Jesus Christ, rewards are laid up in heaven. I give you one more verse as we close today. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2, verses 19 to 23. Peter says, and I'm jumping into context here, my apologies. For it is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. 
when you suffer for righteousness' sake, when you endure grief wrongfully, no matter how minimal or no matter how great, when you do right and you are met with wrong, the Bible says this is thankworthy and acceptable to God. It doesn't mean He wants you to go through it, but what it means is that you are blessed for it. You're blessed for it. You will have rewards in heaven for it. And if you have the faith to believe this, and if you have the faith to wrap your response to life around this, you will find incomprehensible rewards on the other side of eternity. On the authority of the Word of God, I can tell you that to be true. Smyrna was a persecuted church. The devil would do his work. They would be imprisoned. They would be martyred. But Jesus is the first and the last. Jesus is he that was dead and is alive. He has already shared that victory with all who would follow him. The Christians in Smyrna have now crossed the great divide and they stand with the victorious dead in Christ, alive in Christ now. And so too will we one day. But first we must finish our race. We must endure our trials. How are you doing today? What's your mindset on tribulation, on persecution? How do you pray for the persecuted church? What do you expect in this life? What do you expect of those around you? Uh, do you shy away from persecution and tribulation? Or do, you, or, or do you rejoice with exceeding gladness, knowing that great is your reward in heaven? Let's be as those who follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.